Welcome to Try Not to Blink, a podcast about the ups and downs, ins and outs, news tips and tricks of those who live the optometry lifestyle. We'd like to thank the amazing people at Valley Contacts who've made this podcast possible, makers of stellar gas permeable lenses and the oh-so-incredible custom stable scleral lens my name is dr james diem and i am repping the northeastern part of pennsylvania and this is dr roya habibi who is i don't know where is she these days we're gonna find out uh in this podcast here so roya what is up with you you know at this point i am like Three ish weeks out from opening, and uh, I am impressive. super excited. Uh, it has been a labor like, of ridiculously love, right? hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's honestly the most frustrating oh, thing is that the things that should not be that hard are just double hard than they should be. An double example, hard. an example. <laughs> it's just stupid. It's like. An example, I want to have X frame. One of the frames we're having is Garrett Light, which I'm really stoked about. Do you know about Garrett Light? I don't. Tell me about it. I'll tell you. So it's a fun brand. For those of you who don't know, Garrett Light is a... uh, Garrett Light is the son of Oliver Peoples, the owner of Oliver Peoples. Okay. Um, Is it an independent line or is it... It's an independent line. They're still independent, which is awesome. So he's out of LA. He's all about using high quality materials. It's a little bit geared toward younger-ish population. Although they have a Mr. Light brand, which is him Uh. collaborating with his dad. Making a like, kind of like plus forty five fifty genre, although they still look pretty bad at like pretty great. I would wear them, even the Mister Lights. Um, so, anyways, <laughs> we want to get this new brand. Nowhere else in Costa Rica has this brand. Sure. And the amount of effort to get things into Costa Rica is just ridiculous. Like another thing is, you know, a lot of times you have a company. Your company name is what? What is your company name, Jimmy? Uh, we love eyes. Uh, that that's a real thing. I shouldn't oh, say that. What is your name? What is your company's oh, name? To be honest, our our company name is uh, believe it or not, it's Doctors Thomas P and Sandra Thomas P Kislin and Sandra Crocus. That is wow. our actual business name. So that's our business name, and then yes. you have a does business DBA yeah, does business as DBA DBA Hazelton Eye Special Hazelton Eye. Okay, so. Yeah. In Costa Rica, our company name is, it's like Rap Optics, but uh, we do business as Ojos del Mar. Okay. And we had Ojos del Mar on our shipping labels, and we almost had to ship our stuff back Jesus. because it didn't match our business name. Oh and it, it's like everything else is exactly the same. Yeah, come on. It's just super frustrating, right? So just all these little things. And now we're paying multiple people to get our stuff through the border when we are already paying a heavy markup. Everybody's got to get their piece of the pie. It's so frustrating. So then it's like, we're already importing an expensive lens frame. And then we're going to have to mark it up just to cover our cost, let alone it's already, you know, it's just super frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what it is. We went over budget by a lot in our uh, build out. Granted, we built three rooms and a lab in-house lab and a meeting space and a kitchen. Like we basically did everything wrong, but it's going to, I think also pan out because we are Ugh. going to invite um, local surgeons or plastic surgeons to our area. Cause we don't have them in this area. So okay. in the so moment it really is hurting a lot. Exactly. Yeah, I do like we're, we're working on the logistics of it, but um, it's just like, because everything, another caveat that I don't remember if I've mentioned yet, but you can't take a loan out. So we had to like, we're, we're just like blowing through cash right now because right. you know, you're easy. You could easily get a $300,000 loan as an optometrist in the U S but you can't do that here. Even right. if I was a citizen, which is the only way you can get a, a loan in Costa Rica, you have to be a citizen. The loan rate is like 17% or something like that. So oh. you wouldn't do it. Just not, that's not a smart investment. So anyways, right. it's been stressful, but we have a lot of exciting things happening. We also, um, I'm just like mouth vomiting right now, but I just have a lot that I'm excited about. Um, we, 
we can't, we still, I mean, I'm still going through the process. In fact, just this week, I'm going to interview um, for my, to start my license transfer program. It was like a multi-month waiting list for the interview portion. Okay. But as a way to get around it, and honestly, as as a growth strategy, we started a, what we're calling uh, an advanced fellowship program. So in that program, we're actually training local optometrists to, you know, treat and be confident in not only things like advanced scleral lens procedure or, you know, gas permeable lens fitting, but also um, being more comfortable in treating and managing dry eye. I mean, things that aren't because the scope of practice is a little different here, but things that aren't, you know, crossing the line of what is allowed within their license, but also providing care because technically I'm now in a rural area. Like people have a, a chronic condition that they need to be managed for regularly. They have to go either four hours for care or they don't get it. Right. So right. we're just trying to, you know, expand, expand care for everyone who, who uh, needs care. So it's been fun. It's like just every obstacle we have, luckily, working with Patrick, we have like a creative solution. And if it were me thinking of it, I'd probably have been like, forget this. Let's just, why are we doing this the hardest way possible? (laughs) But we've found a creative solution to everything and it's been really fun. That's great. It's fantastic. Well, it's, it's, uh, everybody's sort of like living vicariously through you, you know, everybody else is sitting here, you know, spinning the dials, working for the man and you're out there in the freaking rainforest doing it. So it's exciting. Uh, and everybody's rooting for you. So we'll be, we'll be excited to hear how it continues to evolve. And ultimately, you know, uh, the country of Costa Rica, the town of, remind me again? Tamarindo. Tamarindo and the people surrounding it uh, will be um, the ones that, that win, right? Cool. So. Well, okay. I have a fun question. What are some ways... You know, you just got a new practice recently. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about ways that you recruit new patients, you know, tap into a new market. You know, I've had some different ideas and we're sort of doing things, but what are ways that you get the word out? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is that I just go to literally every place that I can go. Uh, doctors' offices are probably start every kind of doctor, every single one, anybody that will listen to me, I will go in there and say hello, give them, you know, referral sheets, give them. um, What does your referral sheet have on it? It just says, you know, Hazleton Eye Specialist, and then it has our address, and then it has like a little checkbox area where it's like red eye, um, comprehensive eye exam, flashes, floaters, um, family history of eye disease, uh, diabetes. Those are like the main, there's like five or six little check, spot, check boxes and those are the things that come to mind. And then there's like a other, you know, you can write it in. But the most important thing is that it's got your telephone number and it's got your um, address, right? So that they can call or, you know, and, and for some offices, you know, our office included, we like to, when we have those things at our office, in our own office, we like to just um, call for the patient, you know, and a couple offices will do that. And we'll what tell do you mean them call for the patient. So the person working at the front desk will actually call for the patient. You know, the, the patient is there, like, let's say it's primary mm-hmm. care office and it's a patient that has diabetes because, you know, talking to the doctor is one thing, but it's really the, the folks at the front desk that make stuff happen all the time, everywhere. Oh, right. And so, you know, the, the, um, when so we will tell them, hey, look, when you call you yourself for the patient, patient standard right here, we'll get them in within a week, you know. And in the early days, it was we'll get them in within a day or two days, or you know. And if it's an emergency, we'll get them right in. But if you call from the office with the patient standing there, we'll get them in within a week. Um, and then as soon as we start to hear that, we follow up and. And usually we follow up with lunches or, you know, gift cards. And so we start spiffing, you know, the referrals, you know, and specifically the people who are making the calls. Um, So that's how, you know, I think you can leverage, you know, other medical practices. But I'll, it doesn't stop there. I'll go into literally any any place. You know, I've, I've walked into a 
physical therapy office and there was a um, hairdresser next to it. There was a dental office next to it. And then there was an insurance company. Walked into every single one and just said, hey, here I am. Here's what I'm doing. You know, I'm just going to be part of this community. I want to introduce myself and let you know we're here and this is the type of stuff we like to do. So, you know, and it would be the down days, you know, when I'm when I'm not as busy or, you know, um, take an hour uh, at the end of the day and go and do those things. So that was, you know, I think that those are um, valuable and uh, good, but of course they don't always pay off. You know, it's just people have their own um, doctors already, or they just are comfortable with certain things and, and think sometimes things don't change, but I think that that's a good one. And I know that it's worked out in, in many, many scenarios for us. And then, of course, there's all the classic things that you do, like, uh, you know, local fairs and, you know, different uh, senior centers. That's another one. Like senior centers are always looking for little presentations, you know, offering like, you know, hey, I'll come and talk about cataracts or, you know, a kid's place. Hey, I'll come and talk about kids vision. And, um, you know, those would be the, the big two groups of people that usually are looking for little presentations. And of course, marketing. Yeah. In our area, we still do a lot of print and we do um, some radio and we also do a local TV show that is absolute gold. It's absolute gold. I love those ideas. Um, I feel like in Costa Rica, I'm like taking a step back, like maybe 15 years or so. So I feel like some of the things that I wouldn't have thought would have been as fruitful back in the States would be a lot more fruitful here. Um, one of the, aside from the fact that I'm living through this, but one of the things that spurred this conversation today is I was on, I was just like on Facebook, which I'm now going on way more because my market here loves Facebook. But I saw this uh, new grad, I believe, newish grad. She posted something on Odizy on Facebook. She just opened a clinic called Love Aloha Eye Care. Um, oh, I saw um, that. Yeah. Did you see it? I looked it at her did. website. It was very it's impressive. Beautiful. Her clinic looks beautiful. Oh my God, beautiful. it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it is so gorgeous. I'm going to link it for you guys to look at. Yeah. Go like write her a Google review or something. <laughs> but she, it's a lot of people. So she asked a similar question and I want to read some of the responses because I think they're kind of interesting. So one Dr. Alquist, um, she said that she did the same thing around 18 years ago, referring to opening cold, I assume. But she said she spent a small amount of money putting a weekly eye fact into the city paper and can't believe how many older people noticed and came to see. Um, so kind of interesting if you had a little fun fact, kind of like you're probably posting on Instagram or idea. Facebook That's or whatever. Really smart but idea. I like that. Smart idea. Another one, uh, Dr. Longwell said that he found that local barbers and hairstylists are great way to spread the message get them in your glasses so i love that idea like if you have a hairstylist first of all they love to chit chat and if they are wearing glasses which probably will help getting little hairs in there prevent hairs from getting their eyes um you know it's a good time to everyone like give compliments is when you're sitting in a chair getting your hair done and then the last one that i actually screenshotted was Um, I actually not only reach out to healthcare providers, but I also remind them to come and see, see you for their eye exam. Ask them, when was your last eye exam? And when they say over a year or greater, boom, let's get you scheduled. It really drives the message home of getting your routine eye exam done and can kind of, um, demonstrate that you care. Sorry, demonstrate the kind of care you provide versus just talking about it. Many healthcare providers that refer me patients are one that actually are my patients as well. They have my cell, can call or text anytime about ocular concern, and it's a great way to build those relationships. So anyway, fun, fun tips. I like it. I like it. All right, here we go. So this is pretty cool because we, we've had a number of returning guests of, on, on the podcast over the years. And much like uh, many of our podcasts that come to fruition... They happen just because they're supposed to happen. And this is one of those uh, uh, serendipitous uh, interviews. So we, we reached out, or you reached out, Gary, a few years ago um, 
And uh, we'd been doing, you know, we at our office, my office in Pennsylvania had done some work with you guys and kind of came and went. And and, uh, we were talking about macular degeneration on the podcast and some of the genetic tests that were available. And I forget exactly how it came to be, but um, you were nice enough to, you know, not only sponsor a, a couple podcasts, but also provide, you know, a good bit of information on all things genetic testing, macular degeneration. And so uh, what do I see in my email inbox today, but an email uh, from you. And so I'm like, oh man, this is meant to be. So, uh, you know, naturally he's got some new stuff going on, but prior to all of this, we, um, we were talking about genetics with macular degeneration. And by all this, I mean, the C word, the coronavirus. And, and when that came about, any testing company sort of, you know, uh, took advantage. I don't want to say take advantage pivoted, of the situation, pivoted. but pi- pivoted. And uh, then, then uh, you know, t- you know, took the opportunity to help the public health crisis as it was. So I'd like to just hear about, about that. For, first of all, you know, uh, I, I'd like to introduce, you know, our guest here, VP of Marketing and Sales, uh, Master's in Science from Biochemistry uh, from, I'm going to say it wrong, I believe it's a Canadian university. Is that correct? It is. Oddly enough, there is a, a U.S. equivalent in Minnesota. There's a place called Carleton College. So a, okay. lot of, a lot of folks, if you say you went to Carleton, they're like, you went to Minnesota? No, no, the Canadian one. Uh, well, I just didn't know how to say this, the name. Is it Dalhuis or Dalhuis? Oh, that's or? where I did my master's. That's Dalhousie ah. uh, in the east coast of Canada. Dalhousie. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. East coast of Canada. And, um, and, and, but you've been in the pharmaceutical industry for quite a number of years uh, and, and different. Um, you were at Apo Pharma, uh, where you led the creation of a small uh, U.S. focused orphan drug business and uh, managed new product and marketing uh, pipeline. And uh, you've been, you've, how long have you been with Arctic then? Uh, 11 years. 11 beautiful years. The last uh, two, I guess, has been wrapped up in uh, the COVID world to some extent, but certainly a, a major focus, if not your primary focus, it's, it's eye care, right? It's, it's uh, macular degeneration. Would you say that that's an accurate statement? Absolutely. It's like Roy indicated. We went from uh, 100% AMD to seeing a news item about you know, some strange viral uh, t- problems emerging in China to the, the world shutting down in early 2020 um, and us asking questions about what are we going to be doing given that uh, patient care in AMD took a real backseat. And like you said, there's an enormous public health issue, uh, particularly around our facility in, in uh, East Western Michigan. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That, that is, that is something. And so what, tell, tell me, you know, as with that being said, is immaculate regeneration focus continued throughout the process or, you know, has the pivot provided a new direction for Arctic or. Uh, I, I would say it provided a very welcome diversion. Um, yes. because, again, <laughs> our, our testing for AMD significantly dropped off in 2020 Right. And early 2021, uh, we, like everybody else, was having trouble sourcing PPE and reagents and, and all of those ah, yes. issues. If you can remember all those dark di- days. Oh, uh, the dark days. You gotta I blocked it. them out. I chose to block them out a while ago. Yeah, yeah it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. And then we, we took an inventory of the technology that we had and, um, you know, the, the gaps that, that existed in terms of being able to launch uh, uh, an emergency use authorization uh, assay for COVID-19. And the main thing we actually tried to focus on was not so much launching another COVID assay, uh, because although the the need was great, uh, we felt that we actually needed to provide something a little different. So we focused on launching a saliva-based COVID-19 assay, which- Would you keep calling me? I'm just kidding. 
But yeah, so we, we, uh, you know, we, we made sure that we launched a, a test that, uh, children could easily use. Um, and that didn't have that, that horrible, uh, nasopharyngeal, uh, assay methodology. All right. I so like I got to hear um, it. I got to like the way you say nasopharyngeal. And I like to just say like brain disgusting tickle or <laughs> brain tickle. That's what everybody <laughs> says. Yeah. Bagging brain yeah. feel. Yeah. New, new news I just heard is that the um, U.S. Uh, discontinued or put on pause the requirement for testing coming back into the United States, which is probably a pretty big deal, especially for folks, you know, Canada going back and forth. Is that something you are aware of? Sure. But, but as a company that was 0.001% of our focus. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, no, there's a whole bunch of companies that focus on travel testing and, you know, being at the airports and all that other stuff and, and advertising online, but we strictly focused on the hospital and okay. uh, nursing homes and schools uh, around Grand Rapids. Gotcha. So are are these saliva-based tests available? Yeah, they've been widely available for close to two years now. Oh, wow. Um, the, the medical need for that has almost evaporated. Um, sure. You know, just testing has, has really uh, cratered. Uh, and currently, uh, one of the programs that we're still pursuing um, is rather unique. Uh, the state of Illinois has a requirement that if uh, employees uh, of medical facilities are not vaccinated, they need to be tested on a weekly basis. Sure. That has yet to be rolled back. Um, and about two, two years ago, uh, we got in touch with the IOA because, you know, that th- this need was coming out and they had of scattered provision of testing all across the state. And we said, you know, we have a COVID-19 assay. We've worked with optometry for a decade. So if you guys want the testing, we'll just ship the kits to your practice. And, you know, one practice sends in one test a week because one individual wasn't getting vaccinated and other facilities had much larger staff and would have uh, lower participation rates in vaccination. And they'd be sending us, you know, five, six, seven tests a week. So we've been chugging along doing that. Um, But again, that's kind of a unique uh, Illinois-only story, which, again, I'm assuming Governor Pritzker any day now will announce that that, too, um, you know, has gone the way of the dodo. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. So so COVID, thank God, is potentially being put to rest. Yeah, and well, now we the shift pox. goes back, or what? Well, we got monkeypox coming. Um, oh yeah, you know, so that one is. A tell real- us about it. We, I, I don't think we've really talked too much about that. So, what can you tell us about monkeypox besides the fact that it really didn't come from a monkey? <laughs> no, um, I got to admit, genetically, I can't tell you a whole lot, uh, mainly because I've been focusing on the business case and reimbursement, and particularly trying to, uh, because basically the state testing capacity across the country, um, well, is currently rated as abysmal um, by someone in the CDC. So if monkeypox turns out to actually be a real public health problem, we are once again twiddling our thumbs uh, while the virus is out there running around. The, 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 the benefit is that it seems to currently be um, quite limited uh, you know, to the to the MSM population. Uh, and, and so, you know, being able to perhaps more closely collaborate with that community will allow us to offer the testing in a in a in a reasonable capacity, because obviously we can't take monkeypox tests from all across the country. And like just the logistics of all that is is, is next to impossible. Totally. Hmm. Interesting. Well, fingers crossed, knock on wood. We'll see, you know, where that, where that goes. It seems like it's a slower, a slower burn because I've been hearing about it for a while now and it's. Yeah. You know, I'm really, I'm hoping that it, it vanishes or, or indeed just stays, you know, very, very controlled and in the margins because uh, 
we just, we just don't need another pandemic. I agree. All right. So let's, let's get back to our normally scheduled program here. So let's just remind everybody what, you know, how this all started at Arctic, you know, as far as genetic testing, macular degeneration, let's go back in time. And where, where did this all begin? And, and you gave us a little bit of the birth story, if you will, you know, at our last um, time that we got together. But I think it serves as a good opportunity to uh, just let everybody know, again, a little bit about how this all came to be. And then we'll fold in some of the new stuff that you got going on. Sure. Um, well, I, I think that, that in, a, in a nutshell, there's really three different generations of genetic testing for macular degeneration. So we've known since the 1990s that there's a very large genetic component to the risk of progression uh, to advanced disease from, from a person's genetic background. The genetic marker started coming out in the mid-2000s, but it wasn't until 2010, 2011 that we were able to put together the first assays um, where analyzing a number of genes was able to provide a risk of a patient's lifetime risk of, of vision loss. So that was really the first generation was being able to tell a person, you know, you're compared to the population average, you've got a three times higher lifetime risk than I do. What um, is, this is probably a stupid question, but you said we've known there's been a genetic risk for a long time, since the nineties, you said, right. But how yeah. did we know that? Just because uh, so, my mom had it. So I, and then I got it too, or how so did we know? That's one line of inquiry is indeed comparing patients who have uh, siblings and, and parents who had advanced disease and just looking for the rate at which the offspring would have advanced disease compared to the, to the population average. So sure. we know that, that children of parents who have advanced disease have a roughly three times higher lifetime risk compared to the population average. So that's okay. one line of, of initial work, which again, in the 1990s was, you know, was deep science. Um, <laughs> <He's right. laughs> but, yeah, it, it goes so fast. The, the other line, which, which was much more accurate, was that uh, Johanna Seddon uh, at Harvard was able to do a very large twin study where she would have matched identical twins uh, one would have advanced disease and the other wouldn't. And so by doing that, you're able to, to, to um, uh, actually uh, quantify the genetic contribution. Sure. And that those studies showed that the genetic component of advanced AMD was anyone, anywhere from 47 to 71%. So over wow. half of the lifetime risk of this disease is genetic. Okay. But that seems, that seems like good data. And tests was really met with a bit of a shoulder shrug. Sure. Yeah. Because I could test somebody who's 20 years old, who's a smoker and say, you know, Hey Roya, your lifetime risk is, uh, you know, is three times mine. Um, and I, I could be a 70 year old man. I, I'm not thankfully, uh, but <laughs> you know, um, any clinician would say, well, Roya is not three times the risk that Jerry is. This is ridiculous. You know, so so lifetime risk was was a good start, but it wasn't clinically very useful. Sure. Yeah. What do you do with that? What do you do? So the second generation of tests was that uh, researchers uh, started to put together these genetic tests and actually produce risks of progression in the next two, five, and ten years. So I can now sit there and say, you know, I've got two 70-year-old patients. They are both ex-smokers, and they both have one large drusen uh, in their right eye. But patient A has a much higher risk of progression to advanced disease than patient B. I should probably start monitoring patient A a lot more closely than patient B. Yeah. So that's really the second generation of testing was okay. having a very highly accurate. So when you're talking accuracy, you're talking the C statistic, uh, you know, 90% accurate at 10 years time. Uh, so we can compare that to things like pap smears and uh, colon cancer testing and all that, where the, the accuracy is much, much lower. So, so are you saying that you could test macular degeneration with a uh, fecal test? 
No, 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 no. I'm just kidding with you. Yeah. I just heard you say colon t- uh, testing. And that's, I believe, it. you just take a poop in a box and send it in, right? Isn't that how that works these days? That yeah. is a neat one. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Get it. So, so that, that, that's really the second generation of testing. It's like, all right, move on. All right, go ahead. <laughs> got to keep doing that. Got to bring a poop joke in. Had to bring a poop joke in. This is just like. It's only 10 minutes in and we've already hit the poop. Uh, <laughs> uh, I do have a four year old son. That's my excuse. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I've got a couple of dogs, so I'm still knee deep. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, you know, the. Uh, I got to be honest, um, my, one of my best scraps ever was uh, in Atlanta, where I met uh, a number of retina specialists, and um, they were very interested, but one guy walked in and he said, you know, your test is complete, well, a whole bunch of four-letter words, um, you know, uh, I just saw a couple of patients this morning, your test can't tell me, uh, you know, which one of these patients is going to progress tomorrow. Um, and, and, you know, even if one is three times higher than another, that doesn't mean that patient A is, is going to progress before patient B. It's all relative and I can't use any of this. So your test is junk. Oh, so wow. we, had a good, we had a good spirit. Oh, man. What do you say then? Tell us your yeah. comeback. Um, well, this isn't going to sound very nice. No, we um, want to hear it. Let's go real talk here. I like well, the real I'm talk. Dutch. I'm Dutch by background, so I don't take... Uh, uh, Dutch people are very nice, but but at the same time, uh, you know, if you really get us angry, we tend to get a little snappy. Um, so, um, by the way, I love being in these sort of dinner events. Like, I like when things happen like this because I want to hear the real talk. Let's go. Well, so we know from a series of studies that um, patients who pr- progress to wet AMD that the current outcomes for those patients. Um, I mean, again, I can use lots of four-letter words to describe. You know, how good is the retina community at yeah. actually saving patients' vision? Well, if the True. patient comes in at 20 over 30, they do a great job, and those drugs are miracle drugs. But in right. reality, we know that the majority of patients comes in at 20 over 200. Yes. Yeah. So here you are telling me that our technology is useless, yet you guys are doing not the best job out there. So right. needless to say, that dinner indeed <laughs> was was fun, but it it didn't lead to a lot of testing. Okay, so just like for me, like sitting here listening, if I was like, you know, in that dinner party too, what you're essentially saying, real talk, is as a retina community, and this extends even to optometrists, as an eye care community, we're not doing a good enough job preventing the 2200. That's right. Sure, you might be able to not predict patient A and B who are both actively being watched for like the last level of AMD, but you're wait you waited too late. That's what you're saying. That's right. Yep. So you trying to use the test then is too late. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you have it. (laughs) Yeah. So you know, maybe help the community do a better job in terms of stratifying the patients. You can't see the dry patients. We know that. We know your office is jammed full of wet AMD patients. But, you know, can we perhaps reduce the inflow to your office of wet patients um, and possibly, indeed, make sure that the community, whether it's at-home uh, testing, you know, there's the, the no-tell testing with the uh, at-home uh, 4C monitoring, uh, whether or not you hand out Amsler grids like candy, um, you know, I, I don't know, but 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 just shaking your head and saying, you know, um, this is it. And uh, and as soon as the patient goes wet, send them to me like that doesn't work. We have to do better. OK, maybe so, yeah. this is another analogy, but I just like I'm thinking now. So it's kind of like saying like in a room full of smokers. I can predict how many of you are going to get lung cancer. That's right. But not just saying you should stop smoking like we can tell or whatever, like yeah, you're, you're saying it too table. late. And indeed, one of them pounding on the table, you know, my uncle smoked and so did my dad. And so my, my, my grandmother and none of them died from lung cancer. And you just kind of look at them and say the statistics for lung cancer is that's, you know, in this room, X percent of you will die from this disease. Yeah. So, so that, right, was really um, um, like, okay, that was yeah. really the second generation. Um, we then kind of had a fortuitous um, event where 
we know that the Arids vitamins um, in a pooled population uh, are not terribly effective. They reduce the risk of progression about 25% uh, over time. So the question was asked, you know, is that, is, is that response the same for all patients? And that led us down a, a very uh, feisty road um, where, where first uh, company-sponsored studies uh, where I have to admit, Arctic was involved as a, as a study sponsor, always identified. So, you know, yes, conflicts of interest, but always declared. Um, you know, there were some initial uh, publications that suggested that the I vitamins were actually harmful to some people. The National Institute uh, published their own studies, uh, which uh, indicated that that wasn't the case. I, I don't really want to get into the he said, she said part of that, I think the most important thing is that the community um, over the past few years has moved ahead with their own studies. And there are now three different studies that all suggest that the Arids vitamins are not safe for a subpopulation of patients and that you can use genetic testing to identify those patients. And when I mean not safe, I mean a tripling of the rate of progression to advanced disease, to, sorry, to wet AMD over time. So there's a subgroup of patients where giving them an ARIDS or ARIDS2 vitamin is detrimental to their vision. Now, this is the part that's like the shaking the ground that we walk on, right? Like this is the beat, the drum that you've been beating. And that was what we discussed, you know, at our last uh, podcast here. And, and I think, I think if you were to take a random sampling of eye care professionals, ophthalmologists, optometrists, opticians, people in industry, both on, you know, pharmaceutical, nutraceutical, frame, lens, vendors, I would guess, well, let me ask you, what percent of doctors do you think would know that? The awareness level is, uh, is, is, is in the single digit level. I think you're right. I it's, think you're right uh, about it's, that. It's quite low. Um, and and now there's, why? There's, I mean, that you think? I mean, this is such an important, you know, the the data that you're discussing that I've seen that you showed us connected us. This isn't your studies, by the way. These are studies that are done, and by yours, I mean, you know, Arctic Labs. It's not your study, uh, correct? These are independent studies. Uh, yes. So the neat thing is not just that they're independent studies, but the second neat thing is that we have no financial involvement in any of them. So the ability for us to, you know, to, to, to not just say these, you know, because look at all the drug studies that are out there. Uh, they're all quote unquote independent, uh, but companies sponsor all of them. Right. In our case, these, these three publications that exist, you know, we have no financial ties. So uh, right. it's, very it's not clear. like you're saying buy my vitamin instead, it'll do better. You're saying that something not related to me, a vitamin that you're saying is helpful to a patient is actually three times more harmful for the exact thing you're saying is treating. That's right. For some patients, it's about one in six. So 15% of patients have the wrong genetic background. And if you take the ARIDS or ARIDS2 vitamins, then you're actually speeding up their progression. Is there something so, in the vitamin? Like, is there, like, do we know what it is that's causing yeah, that? We do. It's, okay, it's well, zinc. It's zinc. It's zinc. And the reason we know that is because. But doesn't that cure COVID? Doesn't zinc cure COVID? <laughs> that, so. a little ivermectin uh, and a couple of shots. <laughs> God, of, uh, <laughs> of bleach, right? <laughs> that's right. Mouth swishes. No, but so we know that it's the zinc. And the reason we know that it's the zinc is because in the original ARID study design, there were four arms. There was placebo, there was um, antioxidants and zinc together, which is the formulation that you would call Preservision or ICAPS. Yep. But there was also an arm with just antioxidants alone. And there was a fourth arm of just zinc alone. So we actually have, like, it's easy to see that for the patients who are zinc sensitive, that both the ARIDS formulation as well as the zinc formulation have roughly the same harm. Hmm. And one of the interesting things now is a lot of 
practitioners, like James said, the awareness level is low. Um, but what's even lower is a lot of practitioners will say, well, I've heard something about this scrap. So you know what? I'm not going to use that high zinc stuff, that ARIDS2 uh, formulation that has 80 milligrams of zinc. I'll just use the low dose formula because it has 25 milligrams of zinc. And, you know, that's one third of the amount. Um, you know, so uh, I, I can just, I'll give the patients this lower dose and, and that should probably be safe. Well, that sounds good. Except there was a publication two years ago that showed that the effect of high dose zinc formulas and the effect of low dose zinc formulas are equivalent. And so it's just the zinc. A, yeah, you can't give a patient a, a low dose zinc formula and say, well, you know, this will probably be safe. It has the exact same harm. Then why and even have the zinc? Well, because that then you're really throwing out the baby with the bathwater. You're depriving the majority of patients from the most effective formulation. If you don't want to do genetic testing, then yeah, I would recommend you provide a zinc-free formula to all your patients. But then you're not really providing the standard of care. Right. So you're you know you're just trying to duck work by by doing something else. True. I mean, the and, test and only needs to be done once anyhow, right? It's like right. if you are diagnosed or if you maybe are worried about a family risk, just get the test done, right? That's right. And, and we've also got a, a program in place that the most that we will balance bill any patient is $50, regardless of the insurance outcome. So, you know, it's not as if patients are getting stuck with these mystery two $3,000 bills. That just doesn't happen. What um was what, what do you think is the missing link? I I feel like the missing link is the genetic testing, right? So was genetic testing to, looked at at all when it came to AREDS study? Like was that a thought at all at any time, or was that just not available, and so that's why it wasn't wasn't thought of? Um, so we um we partially were saved in the AREDS study. They collected DNA samples, but they didn't analyze them prospectively. Why? Because they didn't know the genetic markers. So the ARIDS-1 study ran from 1991 to 2000. We didn't identify the first genetic marker, which is CFH, until 2006. Hmm. So the, the DNA sat around, but nobody knew how to analyze it properly. And so that's hmm. why history has kind of done this, this weird backward step where once, once this line of thought emerged, people started analyzing the ARIDS data set. Okay. Yeah. So the DNA was collected prospectively, which is fantastic. So you are able to do prospective analyses, but obviously the recruitment and all that, uh, you know, it wasn't built into the study design. Same thing with ARIDS2. Oddly enough, ARIDS2, the way it ran, uh, they also collected DNA samples, but once again, they didn't collect the DNA uh, they did, they collected the DNA prospectively, but they didn't have any kind of a master plan to analyze it. And, and just right. to throw a little intrigue into that thing, the original ARIDS data set is available to researchers publicly. And mm. obviously there's been a nice huge fight between Arctic and the National Institute. Mm. The National Institute also has the ARIDS2 data set. Can you guess how publicly available that genetic data is? Not so, not so available. It's not so available. It's, it's quite well locked behind lock and key. And uh, I indeed think the odds of finding that might be equivalent to the Zapruder tape for the Kennedy assassination. Nah. <laughs> it's, okay. It's it's deep stuff, what I, what I think here. about a little bit is like, what would keep me from doing it once I knew what to do? Like once I had that knowledge, what would keep me from doing this? And to me, the biggest thing is the act of actually telling someone to go get a test done and giving them the instructions on how like that sometimes a is a conversation and B is like, I don't know where to find that around me. Like, what do they do? It's cheek swabs. So it's a two minute process to basically, well, it's a little longer. You have to make sure the patient hasn't had any food recently because we don't want to test the hamburger that they just had. We want to <laughs> test that. Um, but the actual, you know, swabbing, it's just two cheek swabs that you send back to us by USPS. And the nice thing is it's DNA testing, which is, you know, DNA is phenomenally stable. Mm 
So you just take the cheek swabs and it doesn't matter if you're in Hawaii or Alaska or Maine or Florida, you know, as long as you're not putting those samples in an oven and cooking them before you send them to us, um, you know, we'll be able to extract DNA from, from the swabs easily. It, you're right. A big part of it is just having the materials. The second mm -hmm. part, I mean, economics is very, very important. Uh, as you uh, know, James, obviously near you is, uh, you know, is a company that recently uh, uh, rather quickly ceased operations in, in the macular space. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, you know, a, it, it has to work economically. And that's right. a big problem with the genetic testing is that it's an unpaid test. So, you know, we're not allowed to mark up a lab test that that gets you funny stripes and <laughs> going to sit in jail for a while. Um, so, you <laughs> know, the only thing well, that's regulated in all of medicine, I suppose. It's a big one. I mean, we, yeah, we have no, no regulation on medications, no regulation on anything else, but you can't upcharge lab tests. That's right. That's a, that's <laughs> a big dark no, no. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's a big one. You know, um, you look at uh, practitioners, uh, you look at some of the consolidation that's happening in the industry. Uh, I'm not trying to throw any big chains under the bus, but, you know, you must pump out six eye exams an hour. Well, if you're trying to do that, how on earth are you going to squeeze in a genetic test when, you know, the, the accounting overlords are hammering you to, to keep going? And, and we've seen that happen in lots of places that, uh, that well-intended clinicians uh, have their practices or their groups acquired by some of these um, very large groups. And they are the biggest supporters for us. But they basically just become a, a voice in the dark because, you know, I, they support our testing. But how can I do that when my regional VP is criticizing me for my throughput numbers and, right. you know, all that kind of business? So it's, it's really about awareness, uh, which we can work on. And economics, which I have to be blunt, are not uh, in our favor because, as Roya mentioned, you can't upcharge a lab test. Right. When um, so when it comes to the test, you know, you do the, the test is easy to do, right? It's we've done it. We in our office, it's an easy test to do. Um, and as far as the billing goes, you know, you you said that Arctic will not balance bill a patient more than fifty dollars. That's sort of the take home message. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Which is all fantastic stuff. And so, you know, I think, you know, we can link, uh, you know, some of the data that you've provided uh, in, in the form of, you know, the, the research that has been done to show you all out there that there is a connection between zinc. Um, and I believe, you know, some of the inflammatory pathways that we know to be, um, causative or at least tightly connected to progression to more advanced stages of, of macular degeneration. So um, that that is certainly something I think we'd all like to know a little bit more about. So what what is and, and allow you, the practitioner, to then make an, a more informed decision about what we're going to do to help those patients in the form of uh, supplements. So that's the end goal there. And I think there's definitely some value to that. So what, what's the next step? What's the next phase? What's new for Arctic in 2022? I know it seems like it's still 2020, March of 2020, but it's not. It's June, July, whatever it is, of uh, twenty twenty. So what's going on now? Well, what do we got? I think, there's, I think there's really two main thrusts. Uh, one is the is is the evidence. Um, so there was a so, so as I mentioned previously, the the fighting that happened uh, for the past five or six years was different people analyzing the Arids data set. Um, you know, and you can imagine it's a field. And it's just a number of guys plowing that field one way or another and and then getting into some really arcane statistical uh, discussions. Um, but what happened in the past few years is that a, a clinician, a group of people actually, uh, but led by a guy in, in Cleveland, uh, actually in Canton, Ohio, uh, home of the uh, Hall of Fame, is that he... Um, he said, okay, we can't do another ARID study. I don't have a spare $100 million laying around, uh, and I don't have a magic wand. I can't just snap my fingers and, and do a 10-year study. 
So he, he said, he, he, he asked a really dumb question. We know that the I vitamins reduce the risk of progression to wet AMD. That's, that's what the ARID study showed. Right. So why don't I take my wet AMD patients and look backwards and look at the patients who took I vitamins and look at the patients who didn't take I vitamins and then look at the genetic groups. Is there a difference in the population distribution between the wet patients who took I vitamins and the wet patients who didn't? If there's no interaction between the genes and the supplements, you would assume that the genetic distribution of the different groups would be identical between those two populations. Whereas if there's a really strong interaction between a patient's genetics and them taking the I vitamins, you would assume that there's a shift in the populations. So this group did that analysis and lo and behold, in a simple case only study, they showed the exact same effect that has been posited. So that was independent and it's real world data. Hmm. So that won an award at, a, at an ASRS meeting as one of the top highlights of the meeting. Um, hmm. And again, not to sound too conspiratorial, um, <laughs> but, but can you imagine the amount of follow-up that has happened since then from the National Institute on this topic? <laughs> They're free to do their own real world studies. Uh, needless to say, we're still counting on no fingers uh, for that data. <laughs> Yeah. So they, right. they have no interest in solving this. And uh, a lot of that is, is personality-based. A lot of that is, is, is money. Um, and, and again, that, that's the detriment of, of patients. So, so one real big change is that this independent real-world evidence was published in the Journal of Vitreoretinal Diseases, uh, which is the ASRS journal. So that, that, that was an enormous uh, win. The second is that we are trying to get past this. Uh, obviously, we, we just talked about COVID and, you know, that has disrupted the entire world. Um, but, but we want to make peace. We want to have a community of retina specialists and ophthalmologists and optometrists. If they're handling their dry AMD patients, we don't want patients to go online and see that there's uh, the AAO has one position or the ASRS has another, um, right. you know, that's just too confusing. So we really are committed to trying to um, to not snipe back and forth, but instead to peacefully move along and um, and again aim to um, aim to let clinicians make their own decisions. They are the physician. They take care of their patients. If they want to order a test, they should not be encumbered to do so. Let's make life a little simpler. So, you know, on the one hand, we get the data. And on the other hand, we have a strong desire to, 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 to really, I don't want to say bury the hatchet, but, but to really make peace. Yeah. I mean, I think regardless, it's just about everybody who is in this field goes into this field to better patient care or to provide ideally the best patient care. Yes. Everyone's running a business, but providing patient care is what we're doing. Right. And I think with enough, with the proper data, there's no reason that everyone and not saying that you don't have the proper data, but there is no reason that people wouldn't want this if they don't hear it. And as long as they hear it in the right light, right. If the enough people are saying the same thing, it's like, oh, dang, obviously, what am I, what am I talking about? This, of course, this is real, right? Or of course, this is right. And why wouldn't we think that genetics isn't involved in at least a significant thing, a significant portion of what we become? I mean, that is what we are, right? So <laughs> it, it makes sense, but it just... It does. I think that, it, I think there you also don't have like a large pharmaceutical company pushing your information <laughs> like, that have money, that have you know, a bunch of marketing reps and things like that. And that's unfortunately just the way that medicine evolves the fastest because all of us are working day to day and don't have that much free time to do a bunch of independent research. That's right. And we made the conscious decision to not get involved in the vitamin side of business. We don't want, we don't want to come off as Gillette where we'll give you the razor for free, but we'll charge you for the blades. 
sure. because you're and you're still hooked on on <laughs> on buying the same blades. Uh, so, so we've really made that conscious decision that we want to let the the we'll provide the genetic testing, and then there's plenty of other companies that provide the supplements with and without zinc, and you know go crazy, pick pick your yep. vendor of choice. Right, right. Yeah. So that's that's the that's that's the big goal overall. And and again, I think um, you know the other the other thing that really works against uh, not just us but but works against macular degeneration is uh, to begin with one is prevalence you know how many days do you guys go into the clinic that you don't see several patients that have some form of amd you see it all the time so sure. it's, it's not something unique um and the second is it's kind of like watching the paint dry you know this is not a one minute or one month disease this is time is measured in in you know many many years five years ten years that kind of thing so but that too I think really fools a lot of practitioners that they sit there and they all just say you know it's a slowly progressive disease so you know you don't have that much to worry about and totally. again that's true until you look at what happens to all the patients that fall through the cracks and those outcomes are are just terrible totally you look at the real world data of, uh, of the anti-VEGF drugs as well. You know, those drugs work fantastically well in highly controlled clinical trials. Yet all of the data that's actually been gathered on real world shows that the number of injections per year drops substantially and that the letters saved is nowhere near what, what the outcomes were for the clinical trials. Why? Because clinicians get busy and because they're not stuck on a rigid protocol. So Mrs. Jones has to catch a cruise one month and the next month, I don't know, there's a power failure or whatever. So she's <laughs> not getting all of her scans. The, the injection frequency gets dropped and lo and behold, we weren't able to save her vision. Well, yeah. that, that's, that's, that's AMD is it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a population disease. It's not retinitis pigmentosa or, you know, Fuchs or pick your retinal dis, you know, pick your IRD. Right. AMD is the polar opposite. Everybody has it and it's slow. Yeah. So no, I definitely agree. That's my soapbox and that's what I'm standing on. I think it's a good one. And we're, we're committed to getting the message out there. I think it's, you know, it's not a, it's not a company thing. It's a science thing. And, and uh, certainly the data is pretty convincing. And I think it, it offers an opportunity for, you know, particularly doctors of optometry to differentiate themselves in, you know, uh, the ophthalmic world, you know, if we're, we're doing this testing, we're, you know, finding out what's best, you know, for the patient, it, it, like you said, only, only is going to result better outcomes. You know, I, I don't remember. And so folks, you know, we'll be able to, of course, uh, follow up by, you know, going to the website and everything, you know, is, is listed there as to how you can do, um, Arctic testing in your office. You know, I don't recall last time if we asked you probably the most important question that we ask all of our guests. Um, Roya, do you want to do you want to just check and see if we, we asked that question? I, I'm just going straight to it. Yeah. We like to all ask all of our guests what their spirit animal is. It has nothing to do with eyes at all. But we just want to know who you are as a person and what you're about. Mm. Defined by a stereotypical animal behavior. <laughs> Wow. Um, Just going straight to it. We're pivoting, just like you guys did. I would probably choose the grizzly bear, uh, and I do that for two reasons. Okay, Um, let's hear it. One is, again, because I have a a strong Canadian background. Um, But the second is that uh, for every year of my undergraduate studies, um, my summer job was planting trees in the bush. And uh, that, that is a horrible job. Uh, but it's also a job where you get paid for every tree you plant. And so you're, you really want to go home because your hands are busted and because the weather is crap. But, you know, you, you learn to stick it out. So I think, you know, when you talk, um, when you talk about spirit, uh, I think that's, that's kind of my spirit is, um, uh, you know, like James said, when it comes to, to, to this technology, uh, the facts are on our side. 
and it really requires somebody who's tenacious and um, and driven. Doesn't have to be the smartest, you know. Not not all those bears have a lot going on upstairs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but 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 persistence is 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 important. And so I that's that's I think is my answer is uh, you know in the long term uh, we will get to to better outcomes for AMD patients, and it, and it requires somebody like me to kind of head that up. I love it. Fantastic. Very good. Well, listen, we really appreciate you joining us again. And uh, we hope to, you know, maybe you'll be a three-peat. Who knows? We'll get you back some other time. Thank you very much. Sports, we appreciate it. Thank you, James. Thank you, Roya. Bye-bye. Of course. Well, that's it. Before we go, reach out to us for feedback, questions, stories, things you want us to talk about, either through email or on our Instagram or Facebook. We can't depart without saying thanks to Valley Contacts for their support, both the amazing lenses they make and the great people they are to work with. And be sure and tune in and listen to our next episode. But until then, try not to blink. <laughs>